Now a new king arose over Egypt who knew not of Joseph. We are in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Hebrew Bible. Last week, I began a three-part sermon series entitled, Rewriting History. Part one provided some narrative backdrop in order to frame the legend of Moses. It provided a larger context to understand how the children of Israel arrived in Egypt. All hinged on the character Joseph. His gift of dream interpretation endeared him to Pharaoh. His incredible imagination saved the mighty empire from famine. And in the process, Joseph earned his people access to all the power, privileges, and rights that Egypt had to offer. Yet this is only part of the story. It's the part that the Israelites probably preferred. I suspect they seldom discussed how Joseph was treated by his brothers. I suspect they rarely own their people's participation in his discrimination. Nor would many Hebrews ever admit that they too would have sold this non-conforming curious kid named Joseph into slavery. In hindsight, my friends, we always like to place ourselves on the right side of history. And this is one way that we rewrite history. We laud agitators and activists of the past for their courage. Yet we often ignore the pain and suffering that our society made them endure. We appreciate all that people did to take a stand and fight against injustice. But we fail to see how we continue to condemn those today who we think are pushing the envelope just too far. So last week, we focused on the injustices of the Israelites. And this week in part two, I want to focus on the ignorance of the Egyptians. Let's follow the storyline of the legend. There arose a pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. He knew not of Joseph's people. He knew not of their contributions to Egyptian society and culture. He knew not of their contributions to the economy. He knew not of the ways that the Hebrews had become vital and valuable members of Egyptian society. He knew not of the ways they had become valuable and vital members of their society. Oh, and I tell you, in some ways, it's difficult to imagine. It's difficult to imagine that after generations of being in the land of Egypt, 
after generations of working, living, and loving alongside the Egyptians. This was the only land that many Hebrews ever knew. It's the place that many Hebrew children called their home. Yet there arose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. This seems like a curious claim to me. How could someone so uninformed about national history rise to power? How could someone so bereft of basic knowledge occupy such a powerful position? Maybe it says as much about the society at any given moment as it does about the leader. Maybe the Pharaoh's ignorance reflected a broader social trend in Egypt. Maybe it reflected the broader social trend and pattern of anti-intellectualism in the society. Oh, the great historian of American intellectual life, Richard Hofstetter, defined anti-intellectualism as suspicion and resentment of the life of the mind. He defined anti-intellectualism as that which minimizes the value of learning in a society, minimizes the value of knowledge in a society. This kind of anti-intellectualism, it subsumes ideas under supposed results. It diminishes curiosity and elevates productivity. Ethical reflection is replaced with real politics. In other words, anti-intellectualism fetishizes the cult of the practical. It worships the God of the material. Uh, maybe, just maybe Pharaoh became so concerned with maintaining Egypt's reputation of prosperity that he never stopped to consider how foreigners, quote unquote, like Joseph, helped to make the nation great in the first place. Pharaoh was so concerned with mass building projects that the grand legacy of Egyptian art, philosophy, and ideas seemed like too much of a waste of time to him. Oh, can't you hear him? The Egyptian Arts Council, blah. Higher education, impractical. National parks, too much leisure time. Arts education, a waste of resources. Can't you hear him declaring, who cares about the murmurs of these entitled, privileged, sensitive sand flakes of our society, their grand ideas? I'm going to produce jobs. I'm going to put real Egyptians back to work. And in a culture that cares more about results than ideas, Empty public pronouncements like this tend to soothe, even if they don't satisfy. For a people who want to identify with power by any means necessary, I'm sure Pharaoh's uninformed promises of prosperity struck a chord with Egyptians. 
just that the music was based on bias and bigotry. Hebrew contributions to Egyptian prosperity, that became an inconvenient truth. Egyptian dependence on foreign brain power like Joseph is reframed. Immigrant contributions become a liability, not a strength. A burden, not a gift. And such reframing of history meant that Egyptians were willing to pay a price to reclaim their true culture. Yet the price of this culture was accepting a lie. Most of us here, most of us here this morning, we know the dangers of this sort of anti-intellectualism. It's been a facet of American life since its inception of this nation, from the Puritans onward. It ebbs and flows in our society in response to national trends and political patterns. In 1828, for instance, Andrew Jackson defeated John Quincy Adams on such a platform. Ah, uh, the campaign of 1828. John Quincy Adams can write, but Andrew Jackson can fight. Adams' education and his intellect was associated with an aristocracy, and Jackson's appeal to the so-called common man was paired with radical democracy, a pattern that we have seen played out on the national scene ever since. Oh, now let me be clear, brothers and sisters. Let me be unequivocal. Uh, by critiquing anti-intellectualism, I'm not championing some sort of pedigreed elitism here. If you've heard me more than one time from this pulpit, you know my position on this. An Ivy League degree does not define or determine quality of character, nor should advanced degrees supplant viable experience or wisdom. For all we have to do is recall those pulling the economic levers in the run-up to the Great Recession. Uh, I remember that's why I can so appreciate my dear brother, Professor Sam Hayes of Harvard Business School and his 50th reunion class a couple of years ago. One of the very topics that they raised was that we have to own our culpability as an institution for the culture that we helped create that's exacerbated this kind of economic inequality. Nevertheless, we should all want leaders who ask the difficult questions. We should all want professionals who read widely and who think deeply, and we should all aspire to be intellectuals who understand like William Shakespeare that what's past is always prologue. So maybe, maybe that was Pharaoh's problem. He rode the winds of anti-intellectualism to power. He presented himself as the common Egyptian and through one misspelled tweet, I mean hieroglyph at a time, he told anxious and insecure Egyptians what they wanted to hear. Pharaoh spoke to their most uninformed assumptions. He inflamed their base bigotries. He manipulated their misery. 
But my friend, that's just one possibility. That's just one possibility. Maybe his ignorance was born of anti-intellectualism, but there's another option here. Unfortunately, it's a more cynical option for me. When we read in the text that there arose a pharaoh, Dr. Fluka, that knew not of Joseph, should we even believe it in the first place? Pharaoh may have been ignorant, but maybe Pharaoh's ignorance was intentional. Maybe his ignorance was willful. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph, or there arose a Pharaoh who denied knowing of Joseph. Because if he knew of Joseph, he would be forced to confess knowing about Joseph's contributions to their society. He would have to legitimize their legacy. And most importantly, if he knew of Joseph, he would have to acknowledge Hebrew humanity. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. Or there arose a Pharaoh who just denied knowing about Joseph. This is why we segregate. This is why we build walls. This is why we look the other way from human suffering, because it's easier to deny the humanity of those who we don't see in the first place. It's easier to discriminate against those who we don't believe to be fundamentally human. We have to convince ourselves that they mean us harm. And my friends, you and I should never underestimate how comforting it is to all of us to have somebody else to blame. Over the summer, my daughter and I read John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. And there's this scene in the 21st chapter that Steinbeck, Steinbeck paints as migrants from Oklahoma moved their way, made their way into California. Steinbeck writes, men who had never been hungry saw the eyes of the hungry. Men who never wanted for anything saw the eyes of want in the migrants. The men of the town in the soft suburban country gathered to defend themselves and they reassured themselves that they were good and that the invaders were bad. This is what every man must do before he fights. They said the Okies are dirty and ignorant. The Okies are degenerate. The Doke Okies are sexual maniacs. These Okies are thieves. They'll steal anything. And Steinbeck concludes the paragraph by saying, the local people whip themselves into a mold of cruelty. My friends, it's easier to fight those whom we fear. It's easier to kill those who we do not view as human. And this is the logical sequence in this chapter of Exodus. The king denies any knowledge of Joseph and the legacy of the Hebrews. Then he convinces the Egyptians that they are dangerous. Look, the Israelite people, they're more numerous and powerful. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
A new king arose over Egypt who knew not of Joseph. Verse 11, let's set taskmasters over them to oppress them. A new king arose over Egypt who knew not of Joseph. Verse 12, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. There arose a king who knew not of Joseph. Verse 13 and 14, the Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites. They made their lives bitter with hard service. A new king arose over Israel who knew not of Joseph. Verse 16, the king said to the midwives, when you see a Hebrew woman on the birthstone, if it's a boy, kill him. First, we deny their contributions. Then we deny their humanity. And then we deny their life. One of the great injustices of the contemporary moment is the way some seek to deny the contributions of those who we consider other in our nation. We are a war memorial here at the Memorial Church, right? So let's consider the Vietnam War. While certain tough-talking men were receiving draft deferment for bone spurs, an estimated 14 to 19% of American casualties in Vietnam were Latino, including Harvard Law School graduate Nelson Ramon Morales. This death toll was disproportionate to the Latino U.S. population that was only about 11% at the time. Or consider the current contributions of Latinos to the American economy. According to one study sponsored by RBC Capital Markets, Latinas wield more than $1.3 trillion in buying power. Affluent Latinx households are growing faster than any household population. Latina households earning more than $150,000 grew 194% in the past decade. Latinx-owned businesses grew by 46%. This means that Latinos accounted for 29% of real income growing over the last decade alone. And since the median age of Latinas in this nation is 28, nine years younger than the overall population, we better learn a lesson here. If we wanna make this nation great, then we better embrace the Ramirez's and the Rodriguez's among us. For like the history of Joseph and the Hebrews in Egypt, they have so much to teach us about ingenuity, entrepreneurship, and resilience against the odds. Like Joseph in Egypt, our future is bound up in their dreams. Fortunately, we know this isn't how the story ends. For there was some Egyptian and Hebrew women who viewed, who understood that hate is not the answer. For when Pharaoh decreed to them to kill the firstborn, they disobeyed. They resisted. They opted for righteousness and love. They rejected the rule of law. 
This is what I'm certain, my friends, God is asking of us today. As a people of faith, we're called to live lives that honor rather than harm, that respect rather than revile, that uplift rather than oppress. In the face of evil and injustice, God deputizes us as God's partners. We are God's miracle workers. Life gives us lemons. We make lemonade. When life tears us into parts, we stitch together beautiful quilts of humanity. God puts us into this world to make his will known. And when the majority of us choose to act with compassion, kindness, and grace, then I'm foolish enough to believe that justice and decency will prevail. But when the majority of us opt for historical ignorance, indifference to suffering, egoism and selfishness, then the world will be filled with death and destruction. We all must choose this day who and what we will serve. Let the church say amen.